Welcome. My name is Patrick Curran, and along with my randomly sampled friend Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we talk about lies, damn lies, and simple random sampling. To help us navigate these waters, we enlist the help of Dr. Laura Stapleton from the University of Maryland, who lived a prior life as an economist and knows a thing or two about sampling designs. Along the way, we also discuss killing bugs, Winston Churchill, lies versus omissions, signing toast, Oprah, being conceived in an elevator, strata, social media polls, the generalizer, the green light button, court-ordered volunteer work, and poo-pooing. We hope you enjoy today's episode. I was having a conversation with the kids. I don't know what got them on this, but they started reminding me of what would appear to be a pretty healthy stream of lies that I have told them over their lives. (laughs) I have no idea what prompted this, but it was like one laid one out, and then it was this therapeutic dam that broke. And I don't know, so I have mixed feelings about the whole interaction. Give me some examples, because you lie to me all the time. I mean, there were a lot of pretty standard ones, things like how not eating vegetables could negatively impact school grades. (laughs) 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 I do like that my high school son came to me toward the end of a day where I had been in Zoom meetings all day, and he said, Dad, I'm concerned about your screen time. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought that was fair play. I mean, I think the cornerstone to good parenting is being a good liar. (laughs) Maybe that's just generations of my own upbringing of passing from great-grandfather to grandfather on down. But I remember when I was a kid, my dad had a button on the dashboard that would change a red light to a green light. And all he had to do was reach down and push the button and the light would change. And we would pull up to a red light and we'd say, come on, dad, push the button. And my dad was really sweet. And he'd say, no, let's let other people go. They have places to be too. And we're not in a hurry. And he would let other people go. And then at one point he'd say, okay, I think that's enough. It's our turn. And he would reach under and the light would turn green. (laughs) I believed this till I was like 22. I wanted one of these installed in my own car. That's handy. (laughs) So I did something once that they label as a lie. To me, it was just a practical joke. And they were... (laughs) (laughs) There's such a thin line. (laughs) It is. Imagine that you and your wife and kids are going to go somewhere. All right. Hypothetically speaking, in a car, my wife climbs in, the boys are still on the porch. They're probably four and six years old. My wife gets in the car. I hit the gas back out of the driveway and peel (laughs) off down the street as the boys are standing on the porch. I thought it was just kind of funny. It's like, hey, (laughs) came back and they were just sobbing, shrieking. And it was like, hey, hey, hey." wasn't that funny? And the whole time, Gold is like, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? That was about 10 years ago. Uh (laughs) They still tell me about that. The only part I don't believe about that story is the Mm -hmm. gunning and screeching of tires in your Prius. (laughs) I didn't have a Prius at that time. (laughs) I I had an Avalon. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I got to tell you is my lies have taken a new level. And for those parents of you out there who have gone through this is... This is a really tricky needle to thread. So my Mm -hmm. girls are 16 now, 
And they've started asking me about what I was like when I was 16. And did I drink? Did I ever try drugs? Did I ever get in trouble with the police? Yeah. And I watched some YouTube videos (laughs) and have been able to fake a minor brain aneurysm. Ah. And I fall to the floor and curl up and they take me in an ambulance. And by the time it's all done, (sighs) they've forgotten that they've asked. Nicely played. So I have a coping mechanism to that. Uh But (laughs) yeah. Very, very nice. You know, the truth is that we tell a lot of lies, not just in the home. A lot of times when I am teaching in the class and I feel the words that come out of my mouth and I only sort of believe them, you know, there are things that you say that you're like, that's not entirely true, but maybe I'll just pretend it's true for now. You know what I mean, right? I don't. I have never (laughs) done that. And let me clarify why, Uh because I have a brother-in-law who's a high-end corporate lawyer who has helped me come to understand the difference between lies and omissions. Ah. I may omit certain information, but I am not volitionally telling a lie. Now, it is true that George Orwell at one point said omission is the most powerful form of lie. You just pulled that right out. You are learned. Yeah, so never have I lied to my class. So when you say things like, if we assume normality of this, blah, 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 blah. You're good with that or you never say that? Oh, I sleep like a baby. Really? (laughs) Yeah. This is only one cog in a much bigger machine. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm just fine. Uh Uh-huh. And I have never in my life ridden in the back of a pickup truck, drunk, shooting stop signs with a 22. (laughs) Excellent. That would be reckless. Yes. And dangerous. So both of those, normality Uh and drunk shooting stop signs, same level for me. Okay. So your point is... Well, so I would argue, and you would disagree, that a lot of what we've talked about on the podcast has been about these situations where perhaps you don't lie, but I will say life doesn't always look exactly like the textbook that we use says it does, right? I think a lot of things get glossed over. Fair or not? Absolutely. And it also falls in a pick your battles. We've talked about that on prior episodes, as you concede certain battles on one front so that you can marshal resources on another. Mm-hmm. You can tell I'm still reading the Winston Churchill biography. Right. <laughs> it is only by hard work, enterprise, energy, and teamwork that we can win. Your lack of sins notwithstanding, I would say one of the biggest lies that we tell or maybe one of the biggest lies that our textbooks tell, is this assumption that every sample that we have is a simple random sample. La, 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 la. (laughs) I can't hear you. La, 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 la. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. But I mean, seriously, pick a random textbook, a random intro textbook from your bookshelf. A simple random selection? Oh, very nice. (laughs) So hang on. This is what you always do. Hang on a sec. You ready? Okay. Give me a sec. I don't know what's going on. I am drawing random samples. Okay. All right. Three books. Three. Three books. Okay. Here we go. All right. The first book. Oh, wait a minute. Okay. So not this one. This is, uh, you can't fix him. Stop trying. I don't know where, why that's on the. Okay. We're not going with that one. So I share an office with my wife and this is one of the downsides. All right. Here we go. Introduction to statistics. I'm not going to tell you the author of this particular book. I don't want to out this person, but I'm going to the table of con not the table of con what the hell is it called in the back you've written books what's it called glossary index sure we'll go with that mm-hmm. 
Random sample, okay? All it says is that we assume a random, it has a definition of what a random sample is. It doesn't say anything anywhere about what to do if you do not have a simple random sample. And I cannot tell you when I've actually had a simple random sample outside of simulation. All right, and so what would Winston Churchill have said? Is our army is trapped in Dunkirk, we need to <laughs> abandon our equipment and remove our fighting force so that we can lick our wounds and fight another day. You don't have a simple random sample. We have model-based methodology available. So what? That's what Winston would have said. How would Winston have said it? You, you can't even <laughs> think I'm going to try that. Arg! <laughs> Little known fact, Winston Churchill was a pirate. Wow, a polymath, a pirate. He was many, many things. Okay, well, I would like to tell you that I know everything there is to know about sampling and the problems associated with sampling and all of that. And of course that would be true, but I have a surprise for you today. Okay. I actually have a guest who knows about these things. Okay, first, this is totally cool. Yeah. Second... Is it part of a court order? No, and that's really my gift to you, because having guests as a result of court order, it just frankly wasn't enjoyable. <laughs> I am very excited. I have Oprah Winfrey. You get a call! You get a call! You get a call! <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. All right, who? Someone I knew that you would greatly enjoy. I have waiting off in the wings, mm -hmm. Laura Stapleton. <gasps> Is she going to yell at me for not using sampling weights? I don't know. I kind of hope she does. Okay. But I thought she could come in and talk about sampling, talk about issues around challenges we have. Is she in the Quantitude green room? There's an intercom button that was installed. It's next to the Diet Coke button. How did you get into my home office? That's a longer story. But if you press the intercom button, well, that goes right to Jiffy. Okay. Hang on. Jiffy, are you there? Who is this? Hi, Jiffy. This is Patrick. I need a favor from you. Could you please get our guest from the green room and bring her to the interview studio? Sure. Please hold. I love saying that. Dr. Stapleton, we're ready for you. Jiffy? Yes? I wasn't expecting this. Um, could you sign something for me? I have a friend back at University of Maryland, Yi Fung, who would love a signed something. Sure. What am I signing? How about this piece of toast from the uh, <laughs> the green room buffet? That's a bit specific, but yeah. <laughs> Thanks. All right. If we're ready, please come this way. Excuse me. Hey, Jiffy. Laura. Hey, Laura. It is nice to see you. Well, hello, Patrick and Greg. It's great to be here. Dr. Stapleton, do you need a beverage? Um, it's probably too early for wine, so coffee would be great. Patrick, you can put in some of your Baileys. All right, we'll get a nice Irish coffee. Have a great show. <laughs> I am pleased to introduce today's guest, Dr. Laura Stapleton, University of Maryland. She's a professor of measurement statistics and evaluation and also the Associate Dean of Research, Innovation, and Partnerships. Is that close? That is totally accurate. Excellent. I will say other things about you because I have had the pleasure of knowing you for a very long time. Laura specializes in issues around complex samples, large sample, secondary data, 
done work in multi-level modeling, multi-level structural equation modeling, many things related to that, has had her work funded by IES, NSF, NIH. Welcome, Laura. Two quick things that we talked about before you came from the green room yep. is one is you're not allowed to yell at me for not using sampling <laughs> weights so that Greg said you had already agreed to that. And uh, two, you, <laughs> not, you guys have a very nice audio system in the green room. <laughs> and I did happen to hear the exchange. <laughs> And second, as part of your professional coming of age story, which we really want to hear is how did you get to where you are? You have to give us an example of how you've lied to your daughter. (laughs) All right. I'll start with that last thing first. Uh, So for those of you who don't know me, I have an 11-year-old daughter. And there was a good lie last night. (laughs) It's at spring break right now. And she and I are at our house um, that's on the eastern shore of Maryland. And there was this huge bug in our kitchen, huge bug. And somehow over the last several years, I have curated this opinion in her that only dads can deal with bugs. Moms are not called in, which is great because I did not want to deal with this bug. So she called dad on the phone. He's visiting his mom during spring break and uh, had to figure out with him like what they were going to do about the bug, which just involved closing all the doors and going to bed. So I don't have to deal with any bugs. I love that. All right. Give us your origin story. Well, first, my mom met my dad in an elevator at the University of Michigan. So you were conceived in an elevator? Wow. (laughs) That's good. This is even better than Hedeker's origin story. Hello. Yeah, this is the 1960s, so you know. Um, So many years later, I returned to the University of Michigan. I got my bachelor's degree in economics and Japanese. From there, you know, I thought I was going to become a jet-setting international business person with my economics Japanese. But I am, again, for those of you who don't know me, I am really lazy by nature. And I went to the Career Center and the Bureau of Labor Statistics was visiting and doing interviews. So I got a job at the International Price Index as an economist and spent a few years doing international price index type things as an economist. And then after that, I realized that I was interested in education. There was a movie that came out in the late 80s about Jaime Escalante, who was saving lives in L.A., teaching math to young adults. But math is the great equalizer. You're going to work harder than you ever worked before. And so I wanted to go into teaching. So I sought my teaching certificate, and time came when I had to quit my job making money, but still pay (laughs) tuition and student teach. And as an economist, that actually did not make much sense. (laughs) I also realized at the time I could only get certified to teach economics, and that was not going to save any lives at all, especially economics in Fairfax County, Virginia. So I decided to try my hand at educational research instead. So use some of my stat skills and started working as an analyst in educational settings. Did that for a while until I realized I was out of my league in terms of stat knowledge. So went back to college. I got a job at the University of Maryland. So that involved tuition remission. Again, the lazy practical economist came out. (laughs) So I uh, went part-time in measurement statistics and evaluation program at the University of Maryland and then got my degree and realized, hey, I could still become a teacher. So I uh, went the faculty route and went to the University of Texas in the educational psychology program there. Lived for four years away from my husband, who kills bugs, 
And four years later, I kind of waved the white flag and came back to the East Coast and took a job in psychology at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And then a few years later, I was glad to say that University of Maryland called me and asked me to apply for a position. And I did. Could not be happier that we did. So just another straight line shot from high school (laughs) to faculty of exactly what you wanted to do. Oh, yeah. I would not have imagined. Well, we're very glad to have you as our guest today. Thanks for agreeing to join us. You apparently heard the setup in the green room, and I, I have to apologize for a number of things that Patrick said. But yeah, I'd like to talk about sampling issues that arise. And first of all, would you think it's a fair statement that not a whole lot of simple random sampling is happening out there? I think that is a very, very fair statement. In the work that you have done, in a lot of the real life data that you've encountered, what kinds of things do you actually see out there? Well, I would say there's different types. Mm -hmm. If you're working in federal agencies where they have the money to do things perhaps the right way or the robust way, There are careful sampling plans that are undertaken, stratified sampling, multi-stage sampling, and we can talk about those if we like. Mm -hmm. Um, So they carefully create their samples such that the sampling variance estimates are obtainable and are meaningful. In other scenarios where I believe Patrick works with all sorts of students who have $1.50 budget for their research. Yeah, that's right. Those samples tend to be convenient samples that one does their analysis and then tries to figure out, all right, who are these people? Okay, these are majority white students ages 12 through 14 in a mid-Atlantic state and just say only generalization could be applied to those sorts of people. Finally, not finally, this is not inclusive of all types of sampling, but there's something that's called you know snowball sampling or a little bit more rigorous approaches, respondent-driven sampling, where if you're trying to sample a rare population that in no way is recorded anywhere, you might use a method by which you contact one person known as a seed, and then they recruit others beyond that. And eventually you have what almost is like a random sample. Don't people go to jail for things like that in terms of a pyramid scheme? I think if it involves money, possibly, okay. yes. But these are just coupons that the seed <laughs> passes on. Hmm. So that's totally different if it's an Amazon gift card. Yeah, Yeah, okay. (laughs) So already you've used a lot of terminology. It might be nice for some folks who haven't had as much exposure, no thanks to their stats books, to these different types of sampling. So can you take just a little bit of time to unpack some of those so people have a sense of what those might be? Sure, I'd be glad to. So let's go over to the, you know, the government, you've working for the government, you got lots of money to undertake a great sampling selection process. It first starts with understanding what your population of inference is. So who is it that you want to obtain information about and make generalizations about? And oftentimes from there, you have to move to your sampling frame. So it could be that although you're interested in some specific population, you don't have a list of all those individuals. So you have to determine a way to create a sampling frame that gets as close as possible to that population in which you're interested And all of your inference would then actually be focused on this target population your sampling frame represents. Sometimes you actually have a list of all individuals in a sampling frame. For example, if you're working at a university and you're interested in doing a survey of new freshmen to find out what they think, Mm -hmm. the registrar has a list of all new freshmen at the university. So you actually could take a simple random sample. I don't advocate doing that for a reason I'll talk about later. So you could have a list. 
Or you may have to generate your sampling frame by another method, which might be uh, suppose you're interested in all ninth grade students in the state of North Carolina. You don't have a list of all students in the state of North Carolina. In fact, there's probably no agency that has a list of all the students in North Carolina, but each school has a list of its own students. So you could generate what's called a multi-stage sample by first sampling schools, obtaining response from that school. And then once a school decides to participate in their study, they then provide you a roster of their ninth grade students and you randomly select some of the students on that roster. So you've now done a multi-stage sample, but it's still from some theoretical sampling frame. If you could have gone to every school and asked every school for a roster so that there is a sampling frame that exists there. Note that all of these are referred to as probability samples because each person in this target population has a non-zero probability of being selected. Another example of a probability sample where you don't have a list of the sample elements ahead of time is referred to as a systematic sample. For example, this might be at election polling place. You want to find out from people who they voted for. Well, if you stand outside the door of the polling place, you can find out who voted, in theory. Hopefully, people walking out the door did, in fact, cast their vote. But you wouldn't want to just go up to whoever you thought looked nice and happy and would answer your questions. You need to do a more systematic, and it's called systematic sampling, a systematic approach to obtaining a random sample. And in doing that, you generate a random start. Let's say you're going to sample every 10th person. So you generate a random number from 1 to 10, and I get 7. Okay, so on the start of my shift, I'm going to count people and find the seventh person to walk out the door. And I'm going to ask her if she would agree to be in my study and tell me who she voted for. And then I'm going to count another 10 people after that, after that person. And the next 10 people, I take that 10th person. And I keep going through till I hit all people walking out the door in 10 person intervals. The important part of that is I started with a random seed. Mm -hmm. I started with that seventh person that was just a random draw. And that guarantees that everybody had a selection probability that was non-zero. The last thing I want to mention in terms of just definitions would be stratified sampling. Mm -hmm. And remember, I told you I would never take a simple random sample of freshmen at the university. Because if I take a simple random sample of freshmen at the university, I could draw a bad sample. If I'm sampling 100 students, I could draw 100 students in the hard sciences, in engineering and physics and math or something. And they might not give me the same information that I would have obtained had I drawn a sample from other disciplines, from history, from music. So I would be much better off if I took a stratified sample wherein I listed out the sample elements within mutually exclusive strata and then randomly sampled within those strata. So that's just another definitional issue in sampling. In that example, the major or the college that they're in or the school that they're in would serve as a strata that you'd be sampling from? Yes. And the goal of stratified sampling is to identify groupings of individuals where there's some homogeneity, that they're similar to each other on the construct that you are measuring. And when you do that, A, you obtain a better overall sample because you obtain information about people who maybe really like college and people who maybe don't like college. And by doing that, you obtain a more precise estimate of the thing that you're interested in because you have decreased the overall variability of your estimates. 
Would you do those strata and the sampling within the strata to reflect the base rate of the distribution of those groups in the population of first-year students? Or could you use that to oversample smaller groups to try to get better estimates? I mean, is there one or the other or it depends? That's a great question. It took me aback a little bit because I'm a Midwesterner and I say strata. <laughs> so the the strata threw me for a loop there. So <laughs> I have just for to clarify, I'm Colorado. I have no freaking idea. <laughs> I didn't say strata. <laughs> So there's two ways you can use stratified sampling. One is to just make sure you get a good sample because you're making sure that you're obtaining data from each of your strata or strata. Um, <laughs> and that will lead to more precise standard errors around your estimates of interest. But the second reason, as you've asked, is maybe there is a subpopulation that would not be represented very well if they were selected at the same selection rate as everyone else in the population. So, for example, if I wanted to have a special sub-report on impressions of the university by students who are studying Asian basket weaving in the tropics... Hmm then there's no way a random sample or even a random sample within a certain college is going to give me enough of those people in my sample to have sufficient estimates of their responses. So by using stratification and unequal probabilities of selection, we can avoid that problem. We might want to sample all of the elements within the stratum of, I can't remember who they were, <laughs> Asian basket weaving in the tropics. In the tropics. <laughs> a more typical example, if we look at surveys that are done by the National Center for Education Statistics, oftentimes they use uh, multi-stage sampling with differential selection probabilities, and they may oversample, for example, English language learners or Asian Pacific Islander students. I'm thinking specifically about the Early Childhood Longitudinal Study. Mm -hmm. So this is very cool. So you have your strata... <laughs> that you have defined, and you are in this wonderful position where you know how many people are in each strata, how many you want, and probably using some fourth grade math, you can figure out what is the probability of any person within a strata of being selected. So what then? What do you do with that information? Do you fit models just as you normally would? Do you bring those probabilities in? So what next? Well, what you would do next would be to calculate what's referred to as a sampling weight. And that is just the inverse of the selection probability of the unit. And let's say it's 0.05. So somebody had a 5% chance of being selected in the sample. Well, if you take the inverse of that, so 1 over 0 0.05, this person now represents 20 people. That is referred to as a sampling weight, and they tend to range from 1 to, who knows, possibly thousands. And if you sum up all those sampling weights across the sample, you should reach the size of the population. And those weights are then imported or used in the analysis. You can think about just calculating a weighted mean. I think we move from fourth grade math to maybe seventh grade math, calculating a weighted mean. And then the sampling variance estimation is done a little bit differently than how you might have learned, for example, the standard error of the mean is with a simple random sample as being the standard deviation over the square root of n. 
But now the weights and the variability in the weights come into play when you're calculating that standard error. All of this, however, assumes that you have no non-response. Sampling weights typically have to be adjusted after the selection and sampling and response process because not all people will agree to be part of your study. And so oftentimes those sampling weights are adjusted. And once they're adjusted, you should start calling them analysis weights instead of Mm. sampling weights because they now reflect both the sampling process and the non-response process. So those sampling weights are adjusted by different approaches, uh, weighting class approaches or logistic approaches of determining what characteristics of the individuals are related to whether they responded or not. And so if, for example, men were found to not respond as much as women, which is often a finding, then the remaining men in the sample who did respond, their weights will be adjusted so that they count for more people. Does that assume that the men who didn't respond are similar to the men who did respond? That is totally what is being done. Hmm. And so it's very important when you're doing non-response adjustment to make sure that you are adjusting on variables that are informative, Mm -hmm. that are related to the response values that you're interested in. And, you know, if you're using national federal data, they've already done that for you. For those of you who do multi-level modeling, it becomes a little bit complex here because we'll often have differential selection probabilities at each stage of sampling. So some schools might have greater selection probabilities than other schools. And then within schools, students would have greater probabilities of selection than other students. But once the non-response adjustments are made, they're not made within school. They are typically made across the entire sample. So I might be one of 20 kids who was surveyed in a school and I responded and so did the other 19 kids in my school. But I might be like a kid from another school who didn't respond. Hmm. And because I'm so much like that person on known characteristics, they increase my sampling weight, my personal one. So now I have more weight than other kids in my school. So let me ask you, as the token psychologist among the three of us, as a field, and I'm painting a broad stroke, and obviously there are important research projects in the psychological sciences that do stratified sampling and weighting and everything that you're talking about, but I can safely say I believe that the majority of psychological research does not do this. Mm -hmm. There is not stratified sampling, there are not sampling weights, there are not weighted means and variances. There's some examples where the classic undergrad subject pool where samples are drawn from freshmen who were in intro psych. I'm not talking about that. I'm not going to try to defend that. There are pros and cons to that. But I was part of a study when I was in grad school that was a longitudinal study of children with alcoholic parents. And I've talked a lot on the program about different aspects of this. But very briefly, they would pull out a map. All right. It was in suburban Phoenix and start to cold call houses. They would look for particular criteria in terms of the age of the kid and parent composition. They'd do a quick online assessment and see if they qualified as potentially alcoholic, the parents. And if they did, we'd put a thumbtack in the map, go out a mile in a circle, and then start calling outside the mile to try to find a matched control family. And so it would be matched on racial composition, parental composition, child gender, and the age of the child. Mm. All right. And if we found a match, those became the matched. One was an alcoholic family. One was a non-alcoholic family. 
No sampling frame, no probabilities, no strata, no weights, no nothing. And then we built 20 years of multiple indicator latent factors, mediation, moderation, multiple group, all of these things. We co-varied out the effects of these different demographics that were associated with the matching and whatnot. But at the end of the day, we did nothing with any aspect of what you're talking about. And so from your perspective and your area of expertise, what are the potential limitations of designs like that when you don't take into account these really important things that you're talking about? I would say that there's a really important paper that was written in 2009 by a scholar named Sonia Sturba and published in Multivariate Behavioral Research. And she presents the different approaches that are used, referred to as design-based and model-based approaches to analysis. Design-based approaches refer to the sampling design, so how these data were obtained from some known population. And all inferences within that framework are about the finite population from which that sample was derived. Mm -hmm. The model-based approach refers really to what's called an infinite, which I'm not sure why it's not pronounced infinite, (laughs) but an infinite population. And therefore, the model should include all the information that could give rise to the data that were obtained. So in your case, you're generalizing to not a finite population of children of alcoholic parents within this county but you have to define what this population is that you're generalizing to and include all possible variables that may have given rise to that response variable. Well, first and most importantly, we get a claim, Sonia, because she came out of Carolina. (laughs) And so she is a UNC grad. I highly recommend Sonia's paper. So I'm Mm -hmm. familiar with that as well. She was Dan Bauer's student. And for grad students who are listening, that paper came out of one of Sonia's responses to her doctoral comprehensive exams. And it's just brilliant and I think should be required reading. I completely agree. Let me provide the title for those interested listeners out there. Thank you. Alternative Model-Based and Design-Based Frameworks for Inferences from Samples to Populations, from Polarization to Integration. Like all great works, there's a colon and subtitle. These things go back to Fisher and Neiman and Pearson. It's crazy. They were throwing things at each other back 100 years ago on this very topic. So, Laura, Sonia really nicely laid out the historical lines and... She didn't use this term, but how I think about it is kind of a pure model-based and a pure design-based. And then one of the real contributions of that paper is more contemporary hybrid kinds of models that we tend to use today. Before we get to the hybrids, can you help me understand kind of a concrete example of how a model-based and a design-based approach would maybe approach the same question. So you gave a really nice description of a stratified sampling within an incoming freshman class or a first-year class at college. Could you make up an example that would highlight how each of those approaches would be applied in that kind of setting? Sure. So again, we selected our data and we had strata across the colleges And suppose the research question was, what is the average verbal SAT score of the incoming class of freshmen? 
And in the design-based approach, I would calculate my potentially weighted average of verbal scores. And the weights would either reflect if I had oversampled one of the colleges, for example, or if certain types of students didn't respond as high as other ones. So I have a weighted estimate of the verbal SAT score. And when I calculate the standard error around that SAT score, my calculation is not the standard deviation of the scores divided by the square root of n, but it's a function of the standard deviation of the scores within each of the strata divided by a function of n. And so I would get actually a smaller standard error than one would expect with a simple random sample. Now, if I used a model-based approach to this, then I would probably create a regression equation where verbal SAT score is my outcome variable, and I would add in dummy indicators for the colleges from which the data were obtained. And so depending on how I coded those dummy variables, I would obtain some overall estimate of the average verbal SAT score of the incoming freshman class. But then I would obtain also information about how different each of the colleges were from that average overall. And any sort of sampling weight adjustments, analysis weight adjustments that had been done in the design approach, that would be accommodated by making sure I include any variables that might have adjusted the sampling weights. So, for example, if I had found that men did not respond as highly as women to the survey, then in the design-based approach, those men who did respond, their weights would be increased, right? In the model-based approach, I would include identified gender in the model to explain why some people may have had differing verbal scores. Now, the trick with model-based designs, though, is that you have to have interactions of any of those non-response adjustment variables, like gender, and the strata, the colleges that the students were enrolled in, in order to accommodate all of those parts of the sampling design. So the model-based approach has been criticized historically because of the potential omission of important components of the response process. On the other hand, design-based approaches are criticized because they're actually quite limited in terms of the parameters of interest that could be reported. So really, design-based approaches were made for things like sums, means, ratios, proportions, and that's really it. So when Sonia talked about the hybrid approach, this is basically taking the best of both worlds. So we could do some modeling of parts of the design and how it was obtained, but then also just use accommodations behind the curtain on the back end to adjust for the sampling design. So how would that apply to the example I gave about the parental alcoholism? Is I'm hard-pressed to think about, within reason, a more comprehensive match case control sample design for a study like that, random phone calling and then trying to get a matched and things like that. But it's all model-based. Yes. Right? Entirely. 100%. Yes, that would all be model-based. But we were also primarily motivated by mechanisms. So as you were saying about means and ratios and variances, we want to know, does A lead to B lead to C lead to D lead to E? And so it's fundamentally an ideological, mediational kind of question. How would a hybrid kind of approach, what kind of wrapper could we put around that model-based parental alcoholism that could draw on the best of both worlds? Mm-hmm. Well, in your example, and even if it didn't apply, let's pretend it applied, because I will lie on your behalf. I know you there will lie, go. Patrick. But... <laughs> omit. You will omit. 
<laughs> Let's say that you had actually done your initial selection of houses to cold call based on some geographic regions, like a census tract. And then you had called them and then you found a similar match case. So in that case, your match cases and your mechanisms within those households and within the neighborhoods, you could deal with that with a model-based approach. But the fact that you actually have a good sample because you have made sure that you have selected various census tracts, you could be rewarded for that in a design-based approach because you have basically blocked by census tract. Mm -hmm. So we can adjust the standard errors to be smaller because you've made sure you have a good sample. And could that be done after the fact? Could you go back and almost in like secondary data collection, take the street addresses, we have the street address of each house, and whether it be census track, this was all done in a particular metropolis. So could you take a completed sample and bolt on backend information to help in the way that you're describing? Absolutely. And that's referred to as post-stratification process. Anytime you take a sample, even if it's a convenient sample, or even if it's a simple random sample, you can use post-stratification. So let's go back again to the silly example with the freshman. Let's say I take a simple random sample. Remember, I've, got, I've talked to the registrar. We're buddies. I give him M&Ms all the time. Um, <laughs> he gives me the list of students. I take a simple random sample. Everybody responds. But it's a bad sample. And 80% of them are females and 20% are males. When in fact, at the University of Maryland, I know it's 50-50. Now, if I know the population characteristics, so I know that it's 50-50, then I can reweight my respondents. So I can take the females, the 80% who identify the females, and weight them downward and take those who identified as male, weight them upward. And then I would get a less biased estimate. So in your case, if you find that your sample doesn't reflect some proportion of the population that you're expecting, you can reweight so that it is reflective. And related, I wanted to mention something about, and we're using this idea of convenient samples sort of uh, casually. I mean, you know, there are good convenient samples and there are not so good convenient samples, right? The one that you have described seemed like a pretty good convenient sample. It was thoughtfully done, at least in my mind, in my lie that I have sown about your study. There are times when people just go out and talk to their friends and they get a sample that who do these represent? And they say, okay, well, this is just a convenient sample. I'm only going to generalize to people like this. And for me, that has always seemed a little bit backwards because if you think about your population of people like this, like let's say I've identified people with incomes that range from twenty to $40,000 and who live in places where they only have I don't know, 20 square feet per person. And I don't know, there's some characteristics of these people in the sample. And I say it only generalizes to them. Well, if you go out in the population and find those people that live under those conditions, do you really have a representative group of them? Like if you think about the population, maybe there are some characteristics that your sample just does not reflect at all of the greater population of people like that. So when people talk about they're generalizing based on their sample characteristics, I think they need to think about who all in the population has those characteristics and is my sample really representative of them? Well, you just basically poo-pooed every single social media poll ever. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, moving on. Somebody is going to launch a social media poll to ask if they're offended by what you just said, Greg. Uh Uh-huh. Well, there will be no validity to that, though. (laughs) Exactly. Anyway, I wanted to put a plug in. I wanted to put a plug in for a really interesting project that's referred to as The Generalizer. Ooh. Ooh. I think of a Liam Neeson movie. Oh, yeah. You don't remember me. I told you I would find you. (laughs) Yeah, it would be like The Equalizer, which was a movie twice over and is also a new series, I think, with Queen Latifah as The Equalizer. It just sounds badass is what I'm saying. Speaking of The Generalizer. Speaking of The Generalizer. So this is a badass project that (laughs) my 11-year-old just said, I heard that. Anyway, this is a funded project over actually multiple funding agencies have supported this. It's for those people who are doing school-based intervention research. So you've got some program that you've developed, some curriculum that you developed, something that you're working with schools on. This uses nationwide data from the CCD, the Common Core of Data, which has data about each school in the United States, characteristics of that school and of the populations of teachers and students in the school as well as IPEDS, which is Integrated Post-Secondary Education Data System. So it has data about the universities and colleges in the U.S. and information from the American Community Survey. And it takes that information and you can either specify that you want to design a study that would be generalizable to a specific population of interest, population of schools of interest, And it will help you select your schools in order to generalize best to that population. Alternately, in a post hoc sort of way, you have done some study. You need to have at least four schools for this software to work. But you've done some study, and I'm working with a colleague now. We're working on an NSF project. We've got six schools. It's a multi-site trial. We've got six classrooms within each school. She's doing a larger study that's going to involve now, I think, 12 schools. So we could, on our project that just ended, go in, show them the six schools, identify these six schools to the generalizer, and it will let us know how generalizable our results are to various potential populations of interest. I think looking at the ones we have, we're not very generalizable to the state of Maryland, although all of our schools were in the state of Maryland. But it's because the particular six schools we have don't have the broad range that are in the Hmm. state of Maryland. However, we do look a lot like Illinois. Hmm. Obviously. Yeah. So I encourage your listeners to check out the generalizer. Beth Tipton at Northwestern has created this with her colleagues from around the nation. Good stuff. So virtually the entire field of psychology is model-based. And my fingerprints are on the teaching. I teach research methods. I teach SEM. I teach longitudinal SEM. And rarely, if ever, do I talk about this. I have a doctoral level research methods where we read Sonia's paper and we talk about it. But it's not woven into the fabric of data analysis. You get pretty far in the curriculum before this is really raised as a point. I would say as a card-carrying psychologist, my perspective is more often than not, but not all the time, we try to be thoughtful about sampling. We try to define the population in very broad, almost colloquial terms of we're interested in adolescents. Now, that's not a very good description of a population, but we want to generalize to adolescence in this kind of setting. But the reason that I believe we're so focused on a model-based is kind of a pairing of things. One is just historical precedence, that that's kind of the big bang echo that we're left with. 
But also, a vast majority of applications are interested in mechanistic-like questions, etiology, what leads to what leads to what leads to what, instead of saying a weighted mean of this is that in this particular group. So as an expert in design-based and all the sequela for that, when you see model-based kinds of applications, what would you like to see to help you feel better about the inferences that are being made in that kind of application? I think that as a first step, you need to define what that infinite population is that this model-based approach is trying to refer to. And if you don't know who that population is, then I can't evaluate how well you may have reproduced the information. Yes, you may be interested in this mechanism of A to B to C, but is that mechanism equally relevant to this person or that person or that person? I think the field knows that a lot of A to B to C mechanisms that operate with undergraduate students is not the same A to B to C mechanism with other students. So I do believe that more thought needs to be placed on who am I trying to generalize to and why is it that the sample I have could in any way be representative of that population. And I agree because I myself have written that wonderful phrase, the results are limited to the extent that these findings can be generalized to a population that are similar in characteristics to those studied here. Look at that. I've got it carved on a freaking rubber stamp. <laughs> wow. wow. All right. And then my other favorite one, which is, as such, the results should be interpreted with caution. All right. To this day, I have no idea what that means. Yes, we do need to aspire to do better. Are there other things I could do in a paper that I would write and you would review that would make you feel better about how I'm modeling it? Are there sensitivity analyses? Are there higher order interactions? Are there things that I could do that you could say, this isn't how I would have done it, but yeah, I can see how you can walk away with knowing something more than when you went into it. I'm not going to answer your question <laughs> that you posed. <laughs> Because, you know, that's based on a sample of potentially unknown origin. I think I would lean toward replication studies and meta-analysis. And as we can compile more information across different samples that are looking at that same mechanism, the more confidence that we can have in the findings that you have. I think having some discussions of single subject research, mm -hmm. meta-analysis, replication would be great. We were very fortunate to have Samantha Anderson on to talk about replication crisis. Mm -hmm. And we've argued a bit over integrative data analysis, which is combining multiple raw data. But we haven't had a chance yet to talk about meta-analysis. But I think that's a huge thing that we need to consider as well. It has come up several times in prior mm -hmm. conversations about getting away from how a single study is going to adjudicate anything on its own, but that we're throwing a pebble in the pile that when we take it in the aggregate, whether that be through a meta-analysis or integrative data analysis or whatever it might be, that we can draw a broader, more generalizable sense of for whom do these relations hold? Yes. Every study is but one datum, datum, or maybe as Patrick would say, datum. Datum. No, it's, it's datum. <laughs> datum. 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 <laughs> datum. <laughs>
But yeah, I agree. We probably need to say a lot more maybe about meta-analysis and did you say single subject? I did say single subject. Yeah. Those are two things that have come up. Although Greg and I have talked about including both of those topics and then we each decided we don't know anything about it. So what's different? (laughs) (laughs) Oh. So one of the first things that I said was, as I leafed through an introductory textbook, that there really wasn't any mention of these kinds of issues. We don't really encounter these things until we get to much more complex analyses and so forth. Is there something that we need to be doing in our curriculum, at least to pave the way better in those earlier types of analyses? What do you think we ought to do about that curricularly? You know, I think in introductory classes, if we're expecting students to learn what a standard error is, Mm -hmm. I think having them learn that standard errors can be calculated differently depending on the sampling mechanism undertaken would be helpful from the Mm get-go. Another thing that could be done is instead of using these beautiful data sets, maybe we need to start earlier introducing, Mm -hmm. you know, it could be a clean data set, but a data set that might have strata and or clusters in it Mm -hmm. so that students can slowly be exposed to more complex content before they actually get to the complex content. I mean, at least to illustrate what some of the challenges are when data are more complex even if not to fully unpack that methodologically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Patrick, what do you think? Better guess than when they are forced by court order? Everything is better when it's not forced by court. <laughs> I'm telling you. you a strange amount of experience I, in this area. I, I have volunteer hours on my college application that may have been court ordered. <laughs> volunteer air quotes. Hey, I did not get paid. <laughs> and therefore, it is volunteer. There you go. Well, Laura, I would like to thank you very much for taking time out of what I know is an incredibly busy schedule as the associate dean. Who is on spring break. Well, thank you for taking your spring break time with us. Can't think of a better way to spend spring break. Wow. Yeah, that's just sad. (laughs) Uh, We are sorry to hear that. (laughs) We really are. Laura, thank you so much. And it's great fun to think about these things. And we really, really appreciate your time. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you. And and, uh, enjoy the rest of your spring break. Take care. All right. Bye. Don't forget to tell your friends to check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they go to get stuff to help drag themselves to the end of this school year. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a message and listen to past episodes. And finally, get your summer groove on with some Quantitude merch from Redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to DonorsChoose.org to help support remote access and low-income schools. You've been listening to Quantitude, proof that randomness does not always make things better. This week's episode has been sponsored by Sampling Weight, something I've clearly gained over the last 13 months. And by the heat map, Arizona's most popular visualization graphic. But it's a dry heat map. And finally, by the AIC, BIC, and CAIC. We don't care which one you use, just don't be a DIC about it. This is most definitely not NPR.